connection to that idea of, of being together as God's holy people, of entering into those holy times of rest, we're finishing our series in Leviticus this morning. And we're, we're looking at, at this idea of, of how God extends to us his holiness in, in all these different dimensions and facets of, of our lives. And today we'll be in Leviticus 25. We invite you to go ahead and turn there now in your Bibles. And we'll be looking at this idea of holiness expressed through, through the land itself and through what we possess I think I've shared on more than one occasion that as a, as a young person at 19 years old, I had the unique opportunity to study in Israel for about four months. And that uh, opportunity was eye-opening for me on many different levels. But as a 19-year-old preparing for that trip, I'd never really gone out of the United States. And, you know, people describe that semester as the Holy Land experience. And so I was trying to envision what that was going to be like, right? What expectations to have for a semester in the Holy Land. And, and as I envisioned, you know, spending time in Israel, you know, I thought about all the Sunday school stories I grew up with. I thought about all the, the stories in the Gospels that as a, as a young adult I had come to, to study and, and devote my attention to. And, and I wondered, what would it be like to, to be in that place? And there was part of me that sort of half expected that experience to feel almost like a kind of spiritual Disneyland, right? This, this sort of magical place that you get to go. You know, you, you get to encounter all these, these spiritual things, and, and, uh, and it would be magical and inspiring, kind of like a, a trip to Orlando might be. I've heard recently that they actually have sort of seized upon that, that idea, and in Orlando there is now something called the Holy Land Experience that is a theme park, complete with mascots and, and all kinds of things. But if you go to, you know, Israel proper, Palestine, the, the land we call the Holy Land, you find out pretty quickly that it's a place just about like any other Right? There are traffic jams, there are rude people, there are tourist traps. There's plenty of everyday life experiences that don't feel particularly holy right? or spectacular. And so after being there for a few months, the question I wrestled with was, well, what is it that actually makes this place holy? What was I missing something? What, what, what was in that phrase, holy land? turns out that, that those two words, holy land, never actually appear in the scriptures. Right? Neither are there any psalms about visiting the enchanted kingdom. Right? That's Disney's creation. But there are some pretty clear evidences that God intended and desired that place to be holy. But perhaps not in the way we would first imagine. Throughout this this summer study of Leviticus, we've seen this idea that, that first of all, holiness is about who God is, right? That he is other, that he is unique, that he is set apart. But in his graciousness, he desires to have a people who share in his holiness, right? Who share in who he is. 
And so to do that, he needs to set us apart and to set apart all these different dimensions of who we are. So we, we've seen in Leviticus God's desire to, to have a holy place in the tabernacle, to have his worship and the sacrifices and all the institutions surrounding that to be holy and set apart. Last week we even talked about how God has set aside time itself in, in the Sabbath and in the festivals of Israel to be made holy. This morning I want us to think about how it might be that our land, our possessions, the, the gifts that God places in our lives, how those things may in fact be holy as well. How they're part of God making us into this holy people that know him and walk with him and belong to him. So we're going to look at a few parts of Leviticus 25 this morning. Let us pray together as we open the word of God. Lord, we thank you for your specific and acute and incredible work at times and places in history to call a people to yourself. To help them reimagine who they are as your creation. To help them reimagine what it means to live and, and walk with you and experience the, the fullness of who you are. Lord, I pray as we consider your vision for the land that you gift to your people that we would see things with your eyes and with your heart and with your desires. Lord, I pray now as I teach, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're here in Leviticus 25, verse 1. And recall again that this is a passage directed to a group of newly rescued slaves, a people who, as of now, have no home. They possess no land. But God promises that soon they will be a free people who are settled down into a land of their own. And so this chapter looks forward to that time. Verse 1. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you, the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years sow your fields, and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year the land is to have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. For the land is to have a year of rest. Leviticus 25 is, is primarily about the land and how the land itself becomes holy. And nearly the very first thing God says in this chapter, which is easy to kind of brush over, is that the land God provides for Israel is a gift to them. Verse 2 says, it is a land 
that, that God will give to them. Right? It's a land of His choosing. And we see that, that idea of God's intentionality, of God's gracious gift expressed throughout the Old Testament. John Golden Gay, an Old Testament scholar, notes how throughout the scriptures, Israel is referred to sort of metaphorically as, as a tree that's being planted or a vineyard that's being cultivated in a particular place. Right? Israel is, is a people who are designed to grow deep roots in a very specific soil. And so God envisions bringing this group of people that belong to him to a land. He has promises for them in that place. He has intentions for them in that place. But along with the provision of that land come a a few additional indications of, of what they're to do when they arrive. And the first of those, as it turns out, is that this promised land of Canaan is long overdue for rest. Last week we talked about how God gave Israel rest as a commandment, right? He commanded them one day in seven to stop from their work and and to enter into his rest. And then he expanded that by giving them special Sabbath days and, and festivals throughout the year. And here, now God expands and and extends that Sabbath principle even further. And he says, so too, the land you live in, the stuff you possess, needs to be given rest as well. And God isn't just talking about a day here or there. God describes in Leviticus 25 a year-long Sabbath rest. Verse 3 says, for the first six years after you enter the land, sow your fields, prune your vineyards, gather your crops, right? Do all the the work that a a good farmer needs to do to make the land fruitful. But on the seventh year, verses 4 and 5, the land must have a year of Sabbath, of rest. So practically what this meant is that one year in seven... The people were meant to eat from whatever they had grown in the previous year, right? Whatever harvest they had been given, they were to to save a portion of it. God promised that the sixth year would be extra abundant, extra fruitful for this purpose. And as they ate from that, they could also pick from whatever, you know, fruit or produce happened to grow up naturally at the time. But there was to be no planting on the seventh year. There was to be no reaping on the seventh year. There was to be no trading or or selling of the harvest that that came up. For that year, the land needed rest. And we might ask, well, for what possible purpose should Israel go to all this trouble? How does land require rest? You know, we, we might think of land as, as an inanimate object, as something that, that doesn't grow tired or, or weary, right? But I think the idea, as we look at the rest of this chapter and as it's played out in other parts of the law, is that this rest for the land benefits, uh, has, has benefits in, in two different directions. One is that this rest is meant to restore the land itself, right? the, the soil, the, the natural resources, 
And we can probably think of of a, a variety of examples that when fields or when natural resources are viewed as unlimited resources for our consumption, they have a tendency to wear themselves out. In in the not-so-distant past of our own history, as a people, we have the Dust Bowl, where excessive plowing and excessive cultivation led to massive erosion and, and famine and hunger. And so there is a sense that the land that God plants us on, the the resources he entrusts us with, have natural rhythms and and cycles and very real limits that have to be observed. And so part of this sabbatical year is recognizing that the land is a gift and it needs to be cared for, right? Those limits need to be recognized and observed. But I think the, the second reason God commands rest for the land is about restoring the people who live on the land and who make their living from it. Right? So much of our, our mentality as, as human beings, and especially in modernity, our idea of progress is to squeeze every last ounce from the resources we've been given and, and to, to, to ever increase our ability to produce so that we can ever increase our ability to consume. Right? These two things are, are linked up. And so our economies run on the engines of production and efficiency and consumption. But it seems as though the the scriptures suggest that for for real flourishing to take place, for, for real life to emerge, we need an understanding of God's economy. And in God's economy, there are a place for limits, intentional limitations, And I think they are given in order that we might open up some space for God's blessing and provision. Now I can imagine in ancient Israel there was some anxiety around this command to to let your fields lay fallow for an entire year. And historians look back and and it appears that Israel maybe only kept these laws about, about Sabbath rest and about the year of Jubilee, which we'll look at in a second, for, for a short period of time, and then they, they wandered away from this practice. It's, it's difficult for us to observe these limitations, right? Consider if your pastor asked you to, to plan to take a year off of work in a few years from now, without pay, right? We would... Wonder, how are we going to make up the difference? Where are the resources and things that we need going to come from? But sometimes when our earning potential, when our ability for productivity is most confined and limited, that also opens up a space for us to grow exponentially in discovering God's desire to provide and to care for us and to bless us. Right? Resting from our ability to produce makes space for God to provide. About 10 years ago, Katie and I were living in China and we decided to quit our jobs as teachers there. And we moved our young family, Josie was just born, to Vancouver uh, where I started seminary studies for three years. And on paper, it didn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. Right? We were you know, moving from a productive, viable profession 
to one of the most, city, most expensive but beautiful cities in North America, Vancouver, to live for three years from our savings. And right, we, we lived for those three years on the tiniest of margins. We were you know, always wondering where, where the, the means to sustain us were going to come from. But one of the things that I, I love most in reflecting back on those years is how we came to cherish, to, to see the simplest of gifts that God provided for us. Right? How, how there was time to, to take walks through the forest there or along the beach. How we treasured sharing a, a simple meal of soup and bread with our friends and, and people that we lived on campus there with. How we planted gardens with our neighbors and in some ways, that, that restraint on what we had, on our ability to provide for ourselves, opened up to us other avenues, greater avenues for blessing and for God to, to provide for us. There were several times where people gave us gifts that, that they didn't know what we needed, but God orchestrated it to be just at the time when we most needed uh, an additional uh, blessing. One of the things that that I think is beautiful about how the rabbis speak of this sabbatical year and its practice in Israel and, and among the Jewish people over time, is that on this seventh year when the fields are to lay fallow, that every farmer was to open the, the fence or the gate to their farm. And, and the gate was to be left open for the entirety of that seventh year. And this was because on, on the Sabbath year, no food could be stored up or sold, right? Nothing was planted but still, things would grow up naturally from the ground. And so, during that Sabbath year, it's a practice that, that neighbors might wander onto your land and pick from what was growing up. Or those who were hungry might come to your land and, and harvest from it freely as well. And they would share together in whatever God chose to grow that year. And so, as the land rested there was this connection, this holy sense of community that was being reinforced and, and fostered at the same time. Now, only probably very few of us still possess land and, and draw our living from the land today. But there may be a sense in which God desires you to, to give holy rest to the possessions, the treasures, the gifts that he has sown into you and entrusted you with, right? How might there be resources that God has given you? Maybe it's land, maybe it's homes, maybe it's abilities, maybe it's a source of income that he might be inviting you to, to lay fallow for a season, to, to set aside, perhaps so that it can experience a time of rest and refreshing, perhaps so that you can share it and invite others to enjoy it during that season. Or maybe it's, it's just a, a time to step away from those things long enough to recognize them again as, as gifts, as things you don't control and possess alone, but, but have been given by God. And God indicates that, that the land is, is made holy. It's, it's set apart when we recognize it belongs to him, that he sustains it, that he causes it to be abundant and to produce because he loves us. So God commands that the land which belongs to him is set apart for one year of rest in seven. 
But as we've seen in, in the last few chapters, that there's this pattern around sevens. And so after seven cycles of these uh, seven-year Sabbaths, there is to be a, a super Sabbath called the Year of Jubilee. And that's described starting in verse 8. God says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years. So that seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate, set aside this 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. This passage, this idea of of a year of jubilee is kind of the ultimate culmination of the Sabbath principle in Leviticus here. It's It's a super Sabbath that came only once or at most twice in a lifetime. Once in in 50 years. And so after waiting and experiencing seven years of of these cycles, the seventh, seventh, Scripture says then on that year, on the seventh month, on the day when God atones for his people and, and renews them and restores them to himself, then there is to be this great wave of holiness which is announced throughout the land. A day and a year which follows that is consecrated, a time of jubilee. And the word jubilee apparently in Hebrew comes from the word uh, of a ram's horn being blown. The proclamation throughout the land. That God is going to restore and renew his people. And in many ways the the idea, the principle behind jubilee is to sort of go back, is to reimagine how Israel's story first began as they came into the land. It's it's restoring things to that first place. In many ways, Jubilee reminds Israel that when they came to the land, right, they found cities they did not build. They inherited vineyards they did not plant. They received these things as God's gift. And as God says later here in chapter 26, right, you are to remember that all the land is mine. You never truly own it or possess it, but you dwell here as as a gift from my hand. During the year of Jubilee, Israel remembers then that not only is, is the land itself God's possession, but so are all the people who live within it. Right? No matter how wealthy, no matter how poor, no matter whether they they are, are free or, or slave. God says, they belong to me. They are my treasured possession. They are my people that I rescued and redeemed from Pharaoh's hand in Egypt. And so out of his fierce love for his people, God announces this year of Jubilee, one year in 50, and, and he expresses his love through this liberating power that comes to the land and its people. And it's expressed through two basic principles or ideas. They're both uh, contained in verse 10. See if I can do this without jumping ahead. There we go. They are the principle, first, of liberty, and secondly, the principle of return. 
This is what happens in Jubilee. First of all, liberty is announced on that year to anyone who is suffering under the burden of debt. Right? All loans, all debts are canceled on the year of Jubilee. And so too, then, those who were enslaved by them. Right? The institution of slavery at that time was essentially about owing debt to another person, so you became their servant. But if your debt was canceled, that means then you were free to go as well. And so on the, the day of Jubilee, debts are canceled. The, those who are enslaved, their freedom is announced, and they are free to go. But if you've been working as a servant in someone's home, you need to go somewhere. And so the second principle here is that the people are encouraged to return to their homeland, to the the place that they grew up. On Jubilee, any family property that had been temporarily mortgaged or sold off to pay debts was also returned to the original owners. Old Testament scholar Chris Wright explains that that the vision behind this was, was this principle that the land should be distributed as widely as possible within the family structures of Israel. God says, I own the land, but I have entrusted it to families. And ultimately, it's it's to these families that the land is to return. So God desires each and every family to have a a true and lasting home. One that can't be sold away. One that a a king can't come in and and take possession of. One that he has prepared and presented to them. Today, fewer and fewer people have connections like this to the land or to family homes. Right? We're more easily uprooted and moved around. And I think we see some exceptions to that here in Vermont. There's maybe a little more connection to, to places and families. Another rather large exception that, that we noticed living in China was during the Chinese New Year. Now, most people in, in China now work in the, the mega cities, the big cities, and they work in factories, they work in the textile industry, and they, they leave the countryside where they're from, and they go to these places to earn a living. But every year during uh, the Chinese New Year, in the winter season, all these factories literally shut down production from two weeks to an entire month. And all of these men and women flood the the trains and buses and they go back to the countryside to spend time with their families and and in their homes, right? And and they celebrate this festival of the new year. But in many ways, that, that homecoming keeps them in touch with, it sustains their identity of who they are, right? Where they came from, what their family is about, right? Those things are temporarily restored to them. They return home. Walter Brueggemann, in his Old Testament theology, says that throughout the life of Israel, God often chooses to relativize economic concerns, relativize the the making of more money, the production of more things, the wealth of his people. He relativizes those things in order to root his people in a community. That's more significant. That's more significant. a part of God's heart, than than just pure prosperity. And so we we all must make choices then about whether we value the same things God does, right, in the economy of our families, in the economy 
of our churches? Right? Do we share the values God expresses here? Right? Is, is our desire to, to have more stuff, is our desire to, to possess more, to store up more, to do more, to work more, to save more, to grow bigger? Or do we, in fact, embrace the, the limits God chooses to place over us? So that we can press more deeply into to our freedom, that, that we actually belong to him, that we're his people, that we have a home in, in who he is, that we have space to, to bless and, and, and bring freedom to our neighbors, like in the year of Jubilee. The vision of a, of a holy land, as it's described here in Leviticus 25, It's essentially a land that's seen as the gift of God, a land that God chooses to bless, a land that God chooses to renew and sustain. And ultimately, ultimately it's it's a land, it's a place where God himself is at the center of our existence. And I want to conclude our our series in Leviticus today and, and this particular message with what I think is one of the most striking promises given in this whole book. And it comes in chapter 26. If you go to chapter 26, it's essentially this this long list of both blessings and also consequences that Israel will will receive based on whether or not they they keep, whether or not they trust, whether whether or not they walk in the provision of of God's holiness. And so in verse 3 of chapter 26, the Lord says, If you follow my decrees, if you are careful to obey my commands... He says, I'll make your land fruitful. You'll have abundant harvests. All of of these things that we need for existence will be supplied. But then the the culminating promise is in verses 11 and 12. He says, if you do this, if you trust with me, trust me, if you walk in my commands, then I will live among you. I will not despise you. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. And more or less, this is the promise that Leviticus centers upon, right? The, the great hope we cling to as God's people, right? It, it's the ultimate day of Jubilee, the one that, that Israel's prophets will continue to look forward to in Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah, right? This idea is that we desire to be a holy people, not just so we have more stuff, not just so, so that we feel self-righteous. We desire to be a holy people so that we might live in the land God makes holy. We might live with the God who makes it holy. That we might walk with him, that he might walk in our midst, right? walk among us. And that, that continues to, to be this hope that Israel holds, holds out. That, that the Lord would dwell among them. That that ultimate jubilee, that ultimate restoration would come. And that longing for God to make his land holy and his people holy comes to life in a new way. Right? One day in Capernaum, when Jesus goes into the synagogue there, He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, and then he reads these words, these words of of Jubilee proclamation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, turned loose, sent home. That the blind will see that the oppressed will be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And Jesus rolled up the scroll on that day, Luke says. He handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And then he said to them, The scripture you have just heard has been fulfilled on this day. Right, God will bring rest to the land. God will bring the captive home. Jesus says, because today God walks among his people. Right, through the incarnate word, through the, the living presence and life of God that resides in Jesus. Right, this, this promise finds fulfillment. And so today, as we conclude this series, we, we come to the table of our Lord and we have this invitation to know God's holiness, to be made new in the holiness of God by receiving the gifts of Jesus Christ, the presence of God who walks among us and who has given himself for us to belong to our God.